Well, imagine with me hearing these words that no traveler wants to hear. (laughs) I'm sorry, sir or ma'am, but your suitcases are too heavy, and that'll be $50 a piece. Now, not only is that galling because it's highway robbery, but when you flew out on the very first leg of the trip, you know as for a fact that, that your suitcases weigh less now than when they did then, and they didn't give you any trouble at the airport when, when you first took off. And so why, are, why is this ticketing agent being so completely inflexible now? So you asked to speak with the supervisor. And by this point, I mean, you know how airports are. They're extremely stressful places. By this point, your adrenal glands are pumping a gallon a minute. Uh, And your little kids are throwing a fit behind you. And you sense that time is running out. You've got to make it to the gate. Um, And when that supervisor walks up to the ticketing ticketing, um, counter, you experience a core reactor breach. (laughs) You just open uh, up both barrels on her, and and it works. It's amazing how effective our persuasive energies can be when, when, when your blood pressure is spiked and you've got all that, that much adrenaline in your system and you're able to focus it on, on the person standing right in front of you. And so they waive the fee. You make it to the gate just in time and, and you feel perfectly justified, perfectly justified because the, the hundred or so dollars that they were going to charge you is, is an injustice. And you were standing up for your rights. You were taking a principled stand. And you're perfectly justified. The image that comes to mind is that of sledding. When you go up the hill and, and you come down the very first time, there's a bit of resistance as you're working your way through the powder. The powder. But it creates a concavity within the snow so that when you go up and go down the second time and the third time, that concavity, if you're traveling in that groove, there's less and less resistance. You go faster and faster and faster. And so what happens is every time you and I justify our anger by overlooking its destructiveness and instead claiming its justice, we are becoming the exact opposite of our God who is slow to anger. And something of that has to be in mind in the Proverbs here, 14.29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Or a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. I picked this from Ephesians 4, where Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. He's quoting there the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. That's what the LXX stands for. Psalm 4.4. In your anger, do not sin. Do Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. But Jesus taught his disciples, saying, 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I've referred to it in a number of sermons as the dynamite of the soul. Anger is the dynamite of the soul. It's what we use to blast or attack those instances where we believe that we are being unfairly treated, treated wrongly, deprived of our rights. Anger is the dynamite of the soul. Another way to put it is anger is supreme againstness. I am deeply and desperately against something, that something. One of the models that I use in counseling, your anger, if you're standing here and you have a legitimate goal or desire or need that is over here, and there's some type of brick wall that is separating the two of you, anger is that explosive power that attempts to move or destroy to dynamite and blast to smithereens that which is blocking your way. Theologians have long distinguished between anger as an emotion and anger as an act of the will. So I want to delve into that first. Anger as an emotion. As I understand it, emotions are involuntary physiological responses to external stimuli. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Uh, Involuntary. Basically, when there is some perceived threat outside of us, then, and I can't explain to you all the neuroscience, but something happens at the bottom of your brainstem. It sends out electrical signals to wherever your adrenal glands are located, and you, uh, you start to immediately secrete or pump or something or another, this cocktail, a neurochemical cocktail of adrenaline and strength-inducing hormones that enables you either to fight or flight. And your blood pressure rises rapidly. You, you, your body temperature increases. That's why you're red in the face. And I say it's an involuntary physiological response because it's not as though you and I choose to drink the cocktail. It's something that happens to us. But is it entirely involuntary? You're driving down the road and somebody honks at you and makes an obscene gesture out their their car window. Um, Some of you are from Philadelphia and (laughs) have told me that that happens in Philadelphia all the time. You know, getting honked at and having people mad at you. Is it entirely involuntary? No, because you may have your expectations recalibrated so that 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 does not matter so much. You, You expect that. And so if you're driving in Philly... Um, You don't even have the adrenaline surge, not not like a Boisean would. They're not entirely involuntary. Your expectations uh, already kind of do the work to determine uh, how much of a surge and and, how much is actually activated. I mean, if you're a person who has trained yourself in in humility and you're not all that caught up in how other people should be treating me. 
now, then it's likely you're not going to experience um, nearly as much as uh, the emotional fluctuation as the next guy. They also say that it's, it's partly based on our raw material. That some of us, either because of nature or nurture, or probably both, have a greater predilection towards these kinds of you know, adrenaline cocktail surges in, in our body. But theologians have made the distinction that the deadliness of the sin is not based on the emotion per se, but our response to it through the activation of our wills. Aristotle wrote, he wrote that anybody can become angry, that's easy, but to become angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, that is fairly difficult. (laughs) And so it's the sinful activation of our wills, and that would include, at at very minimum, getting angrier than we should. When we allow our anger to grow disproportionate to the offense, when we magnify, as we do sometimes, our woundedness or the gravity of what they have done, we get angry than we should. We get angry too easily. We stay angry too long. When we allow our anger to smolder into resentment and bitterness, all of that leads to the, the, um, the primary way that our anger is sinful, and that is when it's used for vengeance, to revenge ourselves and to destroy the other person. That much seems pretty obvious. What may not be quite so obvious to you is the emotion the emotional breadth of uh, the anger spectrum. We, so up here, if we call that 10, 10 is homicidal rage. Most people that I work with are not aware that down here at level one is frustration. That frustration is actually a form of anger. They're also surprised to hear that level two and level three, um, irritability is a form of anger. When your mood sours, when you feel quarrelsome inside, uh, when you, instead of forgiving and being reconciled to that person, you let it fester, and it it begins to manifest itself. You're working up the spectrum into annoyance. That's a little heavier. Um, Rudeness. That's a little further still. Cutting and biting remarks. Profanity. Physical violence on inanimate objects. (laughs) So what ends up happening is most people spend, most angry people spend a great deal of their time living in levels one through three, and that enables them to be set off at the slightest provocation. Some small incident ends up producing in them an excess of the emotion. But what about the goodness of anger? We'd all agree, I hope we'd agree, that there's a kind of anger that is absolutely just and proper. We see it in the Lord Jesus when he is in the temple and he confronts the money changers and he overturns their tables. His his anger is love on fire. And that's one of the ways anger is is described. It is 
It is love made furious. When something that you dearly and truly love, be it, in that case, the worship of God and the, the honoring of his name, says, this, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of thieves because these, these guys were actually charging exorbitant rates to either buy the animal sacrifice or to, to, uh, to do the currency exchange for the temple. And he's, he's so filled with rage, and it's, it's 100% good. It says that Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus is filled with rage the word there is like a horse snorting mad. <laughs> uh, he's filled with rage at the evil of death because he loves so much. He loves that man and those, those mourning women. A Campus Crusade for Christ friend of mine is on a two-week trip to Nairobi, Kenya right now. He spent one of the days, in, one of his days in the largest slum in the city, just a shanty town of a place. I mean, he, you work, you go through, they're not, they're not roads, they're almost foot trails in between these, these pieces of corrugated metal. And um, this, he, he took pictures and posted them on Facebook of the raw sewage running down these foot trails. And I mean, these little African boys literally playing with garbage because that's all that's there. And he tells stories about of the just systemic corruption in the police department and how they've been entirely bought off by the gangs. And, um, and he's mad. He's, he's angry at the exploitation of the helpless. And if you, if you don't get angry, it's because you don't love. If you're not incensed by the of the cruel treatment of human beings and animals, then, then you're heartless. A, a recurrent theme in the Bible is that we serve an angry God. He is, he is angry, and it's not his cranky disposition having woken up on the wrong side of the bed. It is his just response to wickedness. He, we serve an angry God, and it also says that we serve, or not we serve, but that there is an angry devil. So God is angry, and the devil is angry, but they have anger uh, for entirely different reasons. The devil's anger is, is due to his pride and his self-pity. There is an anger that, that flows out of a self-piteous spirit. His anger is an anger of lust and of cruelty, and and the deprivation of all that was, was due to me. But the verse that gets repeated again and again and again is that you serve a God, the Lord is merciful and gracious, what? Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You can't read the Old Testament for, for 10 minutes without finding that verse showing up somewhere that you're reading. He is, he is slow to anger. Um, his, his anger is his love on fire, but it's not a love that is kindled quickly. It's not like ours when we're sliding down the hill zero to 60 in these well-worn grooves. It is a slow and deliberate and perfectly just and righteous fury. It really is. Robert Mondavi, he, 
the guy whose name is on the bottles of wine, owner of the Mondavi Vineyards, wrote an autobiography, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago. He says that it was the November of 1965. I don't remember exactly how it started, but at some point, my brother Peter and I started to squabble. Uh, we, were at a, we were at a party, and tempers flared, maybe thanks to a little too much uh, wine. <laughs> and he accused me of spending too much of the company's money on travel and promotion. We squabbled some more. A few more words were exchanged. Then he accused me of taking money from the winery. How else could I afford to buy that mink coat? And so here it was, my own brother accusing me of embezzlement. Say that again, and I will hit you across the face. He said it again. No, I really mean it. <laughs> Say, take it back, or, or I'm going to deck you. He refused, so I did, twice. What you have to understand is, growing up, Peter and I rarely fought. I recall only one time as teenagers in our bedroom where we really tore up the place. But after that, never, never. And yet here we were, two men in their early 50s, acting like kids on the schoolyard. When it was over, there were no handshakes, no apologies. It was like a meat cleaver. It split our family in two. It broke my mother's heart. It made my sisters take sides. There was no repairing the damage. I bet that if your brother accused you of theft, you'd want to you'd hit him too. <laughs> um, and that's how it is. So the theologians make a distinction between anger as, as a, a potentially good and righteous emotion and wrath, which is the activation of the will. And you may want to write this down. Wrath is the love of justice that gets perverted into the desire for revenge. The love of justice perverted into the desire for revenge that's used to injure another person. Um, and it's so easy because I'm all for justice. I love justice. And my, my rights are being uh, abused and trampled upon. And I mean, think what it could be more frustrating and galling to be accused of, of something that you have not done. But it's your love of justice, your, your love of something that is good that gets twisted and distorted and perverted into the desire to injure the other person. Isn't this what's happening in a number of your marriages? Paul uses this proverbial expression, Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which means don't let the sun go down on your... Why are you doing that still? Like, have you, have you just made peace with it and decided that, that that's just going to be part of life? Any anger? Don't let the sun go down on any of your anger. He says, because any anger that you cannot put to, to bed before you go to sleep at night is controlling you. And it is, it's making, you're out of, it's making you be so testy and, and uh, sensitive to perceived offenses of your spouse and others. I mean, we all know that the angriest person in the world is the, is the guy who says, I don't have an anger problem. 
uh, the woman who says, I don't have an anger problem. The angriest people in the world are those who live in the one, two, and three level simmering, simmering, stewing in your own juices. That's why Paul, you can't simmer if you've put it to bed before you go, where you go to sleep at night. Um, I believe that some of your marriages could experience tremendous reconciliation if you exercise all of your energy over the next three months to actually to, to, to do this. I mean, it, it's going to take a lot of forgiveness. It's going to take a lot of, of devoting your attention to repenting of low-level anger. But our anger... So we say that loving anger tries to do a surgical strike on the cancer. Our, our wrathful anger is a scatter plot. It's a shotgun. It, it covers a wide territory. Uh, it, not only does it try to destroy the person in front of you, but, but there's a lot of people in, involved in the friendly fire. So your kids. Um, that waitress. <laughs> it wasn't her fault. It was the kitchen staff's fault <laughs> for the undercooked steak. But, but it's, have you ever talked to a waitress or a waiter and found out how much of the, the scatter plot of somebody else's um, folly, that they, the, the anger that they've had to, to deal with? The underpaid customer service representative on the phone or in front of you who bears the frustration that should be directed towards the management for their dumb return policies and, and procedures. Um, righteous anger, loving anger, is surgical. It, it tries to destroy the cancer without killing the patient. If you have a friend who's about to do something completely inane, then righteous anger flares up at that specific target, and it targets the folly, not the person. Unrighteous anger, I mean, the, the, the machine gunner is definitely, the, the machine gunner out of Vietnam is, is definitely the case. You're just... <clears throat> you know, often the real culprit in cases of wrath is our excessive expectations of what we deserve or the sort of treatment that we are due or our, our excessive expectations of how our kids should behave or, or how... How things ought to be going for me. <clears throat> Righteous anger targets the folly, not the person. I didn't know where to put this in my sermon, so I'm just going to say it right now. If you are, we know that domestic abuse is a seriously underreported issue, not only in America, but in American churches. If you are a wife or a child, who lives in constant fear at somebody else's unrighteous anger, then you need to have the courage. It will take great courage, but you need to have the courage to talk with me or to talk to somebody, to break out of your cone of silence, to be courageous, because God is calling you to be courageous in this way. He's also calling you to imagine a different world. So let's go to the Beatitudes. 
What we're doing through the season of Lent, if you're visiting with us this morning, is I'm going through doing one of the seven deadly sins with the counterpoint beatitude, or in today's case, beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall uh, inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God. What Jesus is doing in the beatitudes, he is inviting you to imagine a different world, a world with different practices, and specifically a world with different power relationships, relationships to power. Isn't it interesting that it's the meek who are going to inherit the earth? Like the very last people you would think that would make any kind of territorial acquisition are the people who don't fight for it. That's what he says. Imagine that. Imagine, uh, imagine, you know, the cynic is going to say, well, if, if you're meek, you'll be turned into a doormat and people will walk all over you. Uh, They'll quote Isaiah's prophecy that those who beat their swords into plowshares will plow for those who don't. I've heard that said. But no, Jesus says it's the meek who will inherit the land and the seas and the mineral rights of all the earth. Um, Imagine a world, he says, where the doormats conquer. But they're not doormats. And, you know, the perfect picture of of meekness is not uh, a man who is a doormat to his wife or vice versa, her to her husband, but it's of a man who sits on the back of a donkey and in meekness rides into the city of Jerusalem that way. The perfect picture of meekness is our Lord Jesus, not donning battle array, but a man who understands an accurate knowledge of his strength, and that's why he can, he can be meek on the outside. That's a strong man. That's, that's a man that I not only admire, but I want to worship. A man who trusts his heavenly father with his next seven days, trusts him so much that he's confident God will take care of him. He doesn't have to demand his rights or stand up and defend his own interests because the next seven days may be pretty bleak, but he knows that his father will vindicate him. What I think is great about this sermon and sermon series is I don't have to say comprehensively everything that needs to be said about the topic. So anger, I don't need to give you the most robust A to Z treatment on on anger because the fact is you already know a lot about it and you know a lot about yours. And God has, he's already instructed you um, in a number of ways, taught you, taught you to a great degree how to deal with your anger. And the same goes with meekness. You have already been instructed in humility and have been taught about quenching your pride and being lowly of spirit. So there's nothing new. But I hope you realize that the really important lessons in life aren't those that we learn once and for all and get captured in, in these steel jaws of a brain of ours, and they're, they're, sight, they're tightly secure up there, and we, we never lose them. No, the really important lessons are those that are learned and then forgotten and then relearned and then not paid attention to. And I mean, when you talk about 
meekness and anger. I mean, all, all I'm really doing is giving you an opportunity to pay attention again. Blessed are the peacemakers. One of the authors that I read uh, this week said he was coming out of the Seattle Seahawks game back when they were playing at the Kingdom, which had to have been quite a while ago. And as he's headed to the parking lot, he, he notices a, a large man and a relatively small man who are about to get into a fight. And their kids are standing there to the side of them, paralyzed in fear. He said, I, I didn't know what got in, I don't know what got into me, but I walked between them and I said, dude, you're better than this. Uh, you, you don't want to get arrested for assault and your son's with you and, and you've, you've, you've had a great day together, so just walk away. Take him home and forget about this no matter what it's about. And he turned to the other guy and says, you'll like yourself a whole lot better tomorrow. A whole lot better tomorrow if you listen to me. And it was at that moment the guy decided to swing. <laughs> he said, I put my body in between the two warring parties and the guy decided to swing and I ended up actually taking the punch. I was groggy, but I was not daunted. I was undaunted, so I continued. You really don't want to do this. This, this can't be the real you. you. You won't feel good about yourself tomorrow. And eventually the two parties went their ways. Ephesians 2.14, Jesus himself is our peace who made, who has made peace between the, the two parties. It's hard for us to appreciate just the level of ethnic and cultural animosity between Jews and Gentiles in the first century, but that's what Paul said happened. He stepped in between the two creating in himself, in the church, one new humanity, thus making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Is it any wonder that in the Beatitudes, God says, when you are a peacemaker, I am going to call you my son or my daughter. They, they shall be called the children of God, because in that moment, you are resembling the Son, Jesus, uh, more brilliantly than you could ever have imagined. So the final thing I want to cover here is, is symptoms. How do you control your, your things on a, on a symptomatic level? Mark Twain said, if you struggle with anger, count to ten. If you don't feel better by the time you get to four, then, uh, then cuss. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson said, what, you, like, you count to 100, and then if that doesn't work, you count to, or you count to 10, that, that doesn't work, you count to 100, if that doesn't work, you just quit. <laughs> um, one s suggestion on symptom level is to keep a, a journal. Now, I know what you're thinking, not, not another journaling ac activity. But yes, you record the times when you were angry and what you were angry about, and you rate the, each episode on its, uh, for its intensity on a scale of a 1 to 5. What separates this from other journaling exercises is after 7 days, you just you tuck it away and you don't look at it for at least another week. Uh, maybe 7 to 10 days, it just sits there. 
Then you go back, and what you will find frequently, those reactions which seemed perfectly justified and rational just seven days prior look remarkably petty and self-serving in retrospect. And so you analyze that. What's wrong with my... Were my expectations realistic about what I deserved and what I needed? Was my response legitimate or excessive? Did it, was it surgical or was it shotgun? You know, much of our wrath is rooted in unholy expectations of other people. The ticketing episode at the airport looks a whole lot different seven days later than it does when you're sitting on the airplane. So that's that's a symptom solution. And they can be, they have some utility. They can be useful. But ultimately, we understand that uh, overcoming our anger is a a miracle. For some of us who struggle with anger, and I'm one of them, it takes a miracle (laughs) And it's the miracle of Jesus' spirit coming and infusing yours. So not only is he the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, if you're King James Versioner, but he is Jesus' spirit, the very same spirit that meekly sat on on the back of, of the donkey is the spirit that he pours out into your soul. If you have not recently pleaded with Jesus' spirit, to dwell in me richly, to control me, to, to animate me. And I suspect you haven't, really. Uh, then, then that's where you begin. Many of us do have dreams of doing great things for God. But for us, many of us, this would be a truly great thing. I mean, if people could see behind the door and see what you do and hear what you say, in those moments, you would be absolutely mortified. But for you to put to death your anger and to clothe yourself in the character of Christ would be a truly great thing. So I want you to think about that. We'll take three to five minutes. Sermon questions are on the next page. You can use these or come up with your own. Pray silently and then we'll come to the table. Lord Jesus, you who are high and holy, yet also meek and lowly, let us learn by paradox, by your paradox, that the way down is the way up, that that to be low is to be made high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess everything. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. To give is to receive. That the valley is is the top of the mountains. Um, Let us find your light in our darkness, your life in our death your joy and our sorrow, your grace and our sin, your riches and our poverty, your glory and our meekness.